Under the Tartan Sky, Episode 61, produced 20 April 2019. Since its inception in 2015, the North Coast 500 has become one of Scotland's most popular tourist destinations. In its first year of operation, it was named by Now Travel magazine as one of the top five coastal routes in the world. It's often referred to as Scotland's Route 66. The 516-mile circular journey is a jaw-droppingly picturesque adventure through the northern Scottish Highlands a sense of which has now been captured in a new coffee table photo book, The Magic of the North Coast 500. I'm Glenn Moyer, and in a moment, we'll meet the book's author, award-winning Scottish photographer, John Bakey, here, Under the Tartan Sky. Scotland offers many things to many people. Its history is filled with stories of great leaders like William Wallace and Robert the Bruce, of battles like Bannockburn and Culloden. Its culture includes whiskey and tartan, castles and clans. It's a land of great literature, invention and innovation, of sweeping vistas and great glens and shimmering lochs. For millions around the world, Scotland is key to their ancestry, to who they are, to where they've come from. It's a haven for wildlife and a paradise for sport. Indeed, Scotland has something for almost everyone. In 2019, why not plan to visit and discover for yourself just what Scotland has to offer for you? In the movie Field of Dreams, an Iowa farmer hears a voice saying, If you build it, he will come. He proceeds to plow up his cornfield and build a baseball diamond, and he, his late father, and thousands of fans do indeed show up at his door. Now, I'm not saying the folks in the Scottish Highlands were hearing voices back in 2015, but they did notice that the northernmost highlands in Scotland an area comprised of the traditional counties of Invernessshire, Ross and Cromarty, Sutherland, and Caithness, were not receiving their fair share of tourist traffic, despite having all the features that tourists so often seek out in Scotland. Whiskey distilleries, castles, walking trails, deserted beaches, quaint villages, and sumptuous seafood and local produce. The problem was how to bring all of this together into one iconic tourist destination. And that's where the concept of the North Coast 500 was born. As a project of the North Highland Initiative and supported by Visit Scotland and the Highlands and Islands Enterprise. Above all else, the North Coast 500 is, as noted in our opening, a jaw-droppingly picturesque adventure through scenic lands of the type that Scotland is best known for. The beauty of that scenery has now been captured for all to enjoy, whether you visit Scotland or not, in a new coffee table photo book, 
the magic of the North Coast 500. The book was the brainchild of award-winning Scottish photographer John Bakey, but it might never have happened. Bakey was a mechanical engineer who, though he played with compact cameras as a kid, didn't really come to photography until he was in his mid-twenties. He eventually did make his name in wedding photography, a skill he is still highly sought after for. Indeed, he's been named Wedding Photographer of the Year in Scotland more than once, along with hundreds of other awards. Commercial portraiture and product photography are also a staple of his work with landscape photography, the type featured in this new book, as more of a hobby. This is his first book. It's publication funded through financial backing and support on the crowdfunding platform Kickstarter. Born in Caithness and now working out of Inverness, the North Coast 500 is an area John knows parts of quite intimately. You see, long before the North Coast 500 was even dreamed of, John was just a kid playing sport along the route, which is how he says he got started in photography. When I started, it was back in the days of film, so there was a whole excitement of taking pictures and then waiting to see what what you got from your from your film when it was processed um and it just grew from there i suppose and at the time being up in the north of scotland there wasn't that many photographers around so there was i spotted a an opportunity quite quickly uh i was really into sport and played a lot of football and that's soccer to you guys proper yes. proper football <laughs> proper um football. yeah so i was quite involved in the local scene so just spoke to local newspaper and they were quite keen they had nobody doing that kind of photography at the time so that was where it all started really just going out on a, a saturday afternoon photographing some local sport and making a few pound on the side while i was working yeah, I remember the film days. That's when I started. Uh, I started back in the seventies with an old, uh, a Nikon. I used Nikon F one, and, and I can remember having to learning to bracket shoot everything. You bracketed all your exposures yeah. because you know you never were quite sure what would come back. It wasn't like now where you can look at the screen digitally yeah. and go, eh, "That didn't work. Let's do it again. Oh, that didn't work. Let's try it again. Well, let me do this. Let's try it again." Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, and I, and I can remember one time reading an article about um, photographers for National Geographic shooting, you know, like a four or a six to one ratio for every one picture that that might get used or that they <laughs> felt was quality. You know, there'd be five or six that they would um, uh, they would throw away that just didn't didn't yeah. you know, didn't Absolutely. stand up to the standards. They'd have been shooting on slide film as well, and there's just no no room for error. So yeah, you'd have to you have to bracket like crazy. Yeah, back in the days of uh, ectochrome and kodachrome, when uh, we all used to we all used to shoot that stuff. Yeah. When you look at your website, I, and I don't want to mischaracterize you, but when I first look at your website, I go, "Oh, John's a wedding photographer." Is that a is that a? But you do other photography, and we're going to talk a lot about that. But is that a fair description of of who you are? Did you did you move from sport to wedding photography as a way to make money? Is that how that happened? Yeah, um, yeah. I think weddings are probably what I'm best known for. Uh, recent years, it's it's become slightly more spread out amongst other genres. But uh, yeah, for for a number of years, weddings was my main thing. Sort of fell into weddings the same way I fell into 
the other photography just there was a there was a gap in the market i I started doing portraits and then did a few friends very small weddings and it just grew from there but i can't say i enjoyed it in the early days because it's it's a (laughs) it's a film thing again it was just the stress of shooting everything and sending films away and hoping that they didn't get lost yeah. in the post hoping the lab didn't mess up and then hoping they never got lost in the post again and then eventually get them back and hoping you haven't screwed up yourself um yeah i can't say i was enjoying it very much in those days but digital definitely changed that you know a lot of photographers really do eschew wedding photography is i know my dad did some wedding photography and but a lot of photographers do it and and do it i guess essentially they see it as as a you know a way to make money at the craft but it's not something most photographers that i've ever met really relish in and yet looking at your website your your work is it's not what I would call particularly wedding photography. It's really art photography. You've made an art of it, which I'm sure is why you're in demand. But what changed that that helped you to embrace that genre of photography? I think, as I said, it was uh, changing over to digital was a, a big thing. Uh, I, I had actually already made a decision to stop taking wedding bookings. must have been around about 2000, 2001, and then... 2002 I went I just went for it for digital cameras lenses changed everything over and it just opened up a whole new world to me it was able to to shoot more take some more chances with things that you maybe wouldn't have risked with film because uh, you can tell right away if it's worked or not uh, that was a that was a, a big change for me but I, I do love weddings I, I just love the the mood of them, the emotions, everyone's happy. Every couple's different as well, so there's it, there's always something new, and I like I like the interaction between the guests as well. It's I just enjoy them, I suppose. I had the a good chuckle when I was reading through your website when you talked about you'll do anything to get the right wedding picture, including things like lying down in a puddle. And I thought, really? <laughs> yeah, you've got to. You've just got to be prepared to put a bit of effort in if that's what it takes to get something that's they're gonna love and maybe different from what anybody else would have done in the same situation i guess i was just thinking of some some weddings i've been to and photographers i've seen and i can't imagine any of them lying down in a puddle <laughs> oh, to take yeah. a picture <laughs> i maybe draw a line actually lying in the puddle i'll probably try and find something to lie on but uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, I've 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 lied in almost in puddles, and I posted one up on social media just last week. I think it was where a reflection of a car and a couple, and it was literally just a puddle, but it looked like I had shot them across a lake or something. Well, you also do landscape photography, and which is what the new book is about that we're going to talk about. And mm-hmm. and you do what I think you you categorize. I guess it's either business or corporate photography and, and i have to admit that's where i first saw your work you did a fantastic photo shoot for our mutual friend claire campbell at Prickly mm-hmm. thistle yeah and so when she uh, posted photos that she uh, that you had done for her it's when i first became aware of, of your um, your work and is that a, a vital part of your um, of your business landscape and corporate photography the Commercial corporate stuff, yes. Landscape, not so much. Um, yeah, I've, I've got quite a diverse 
business, really. And I think partly just living in the north of Scotland, where it's quite sparsely populated, you have to you have to be able to do a little bit more than just there's not enough work in in weddings to well there possibly is, but I like to to be quite diverse in what I shoot. Uh, it makes it more interesting as well. Uh, the commercial stuff like shooting for businesses um it's less stressful than than weddings and it's 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 it, you can make okay money out of it as well um you meet loads of different people it's it just makes it more interesting i guess variety i could uh-huh. be working in a whiskey distillery one day and i could be on a building site the next and then shooting a wedding the day after that you know it just makes it more interesting the other good thing about the commercial work i like is that you pretty much you go in you shoot you edit you upload the picture send your invoice job done and you move on whereas a wedding's more of a longer term relationship with your clients i suppose you're you're still exchanging emails months later a commercial client you just in and out in your commercial work you do it's not all people are what i would call portrait photography people photography like like in a wedding you're, you're doing i know some uh some product photography as well as you said maybe on a building site maybe you're you know photographing construction or a new building or furnishings or whatever it might be do you find that a difficult balance to strike in terms of shooting product as opposed to shooting people yeah, products is a totally different thing. I prefer to work with people because you can tell them to move, and you can you can do, you can, you can do a bit more with them, and it's it's a bit more uh, sociable than working by yourself. Um, yeah, I, I prefer to work with people if I can. Landscape, really, I guess it sounds like is is the least of your money making photography work, yeah. as it were. Yeah. So then you've come out with this new book on the North Coast Five Hundred, and it's a landscape photography book. So why in the world, if you have these two <laughs> profit centers, are you out spending all this time on something that isn't a profit maker for you or isn't generally one, I guess? Um, I, I never really could see a way of making money from shooting landscapes much as I enjoy doing them. Uh, but the book has proved that wrong <laughs> because it, it's sold quite well so far. Um I always landscape photography. I suppose was more of a hobby until until this project came around. It was more of an, a yeah, you do photography as a business. What do you do for a hobby? I do photography, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's it's different. It's relaxing, and it, yeah, it's nice just to get outside and out in the, our beautiful Scottish countryside. So how how did the book project come about? Did you just wake up one day and go, oh, I know, light bulb goes off, I'm going to do a book of photography? Well, it came from quite a, a dark place, really. I was going through quite quite a, a, a difficult time, um, quite depressed at the time, and I was really struggling. And at the stage where I was actually probably questioning whether there was any point of, in life at all. And at some point, I just decided... I needed to do something. Partly from a, a dark part of my mind, I was thinking I need to have something, some sort of legacy. But it developed then into something that I became obsessed with, and it actually just became quite therapeutic. The whole, the whole project, getting out, building the community on, on Kickstarter was great, and 
yeah, it was. It just turned into I don't know a passion. So why the North Coast 500? Did you have in mind immediately focusing on that region? Did you go to them and work out a partnership? How did the focus come to be on the North Coast 500 then? Well, because I'm from that area, that was a big part of it. But initially, my first project was going to be that I was going to be shooting Caithness, which is the county that I come from, which is the most northerly one. And... After I just I, I gave it some thought. I actually started shooting some pictures, and then I, for some reason, I, I I cycled the North Coast 500 back in 2015 when they first launched it, and I have had a bit of communication between myself and them over the years. And yeah, something triggered in my head. I thought North Coast 500. It's really popular just now. It gives me a bigger area to work with and a bigger audience, I suppose, and a, a better chance of selling books. And it's none of it was particularly far from my own doorstep either. You talked about building the community on uh, Kickstarter. You did uh, fund the book, at least partially. I, I don't know all of the business uh, of creating the book, but I, I know that's how, uh, again, through Claire, I became aware of your project on Kickstarter and uh, bought into it. And I guess the question is why the decision to, uh, to use a, a crowdfunding mechanism to, to create this work? I did look at doing it other ways. Um, I was looking at use, obviously using my own money or whatever, but it was a good way to to test the water to see what interest there was because you could. I was basically pre-selling copies of my book rather mm-hmm. than rather than chucking thousands and thousands of pounds at getting a book made and then trying to then finding out that nobody was interested in it. <laughs> Because uh, this yeah. <laughs> this way, people were people were buying into it, and there was no risk because if it, if you don't raise a hundred percent on Kickstarter, you don't get anything. So you just put it down as a well, it didn't work. Um, so that, yeah, it just it took the pressure off a little bit, and it built up a little bit of confidence that people wanted to wanted to see it. The community sort of feel that I was talking about. There was. It, Certainly on social media, every time I, I went out on a shoot, I'd be posting some pictures I'd taken on my phone, like behind the scenes camera setup kind of thing. And it did create quite a bit of interest, which was good. And that's encouraging you all the time to to keep it going. And, and of course, once the money's in the bank, <laughs> you, you've got to do it. There's no backing <laughs> yeah. out then. It's not, not going to be one of these unfinished projects. But uh, it, was, it, it was a good platform to, to do kickstarter I, I really liked using it i would definitely use it again the amazing thing i find about um, kickstarter and other crowdfunding things um, having worked with again with claire on her project is that as you build that community you're talking about they do a lot of the marketing for you um, yeah you know because they share to their friends their social media that they're involved in your project or most people will it was exactly that way claire shared something about your book on her facebook page i saw it looked at the project said yeah i like this and i jumped in and of course then i shared it out into uh, into my social media world so in in essence it's not just a funding mechanism but it seems like it's also a marketing mechanism yeah it definitely worked really well as a a marketing network, yeah. That I, people sharing posts constantly. I also had equally many, as many people unfollowing me, and unfriending <laughs> me because I was spamming their page for thirty <laughs> days initially, and then beyond that, I was just constantly firing it out there. But um, 
yeah, it it, it was good. It, it worked really well. Well, let's talk a little bit about the locations that are in the book and and the actual photography work that you do. The North Coast 500 is is a big place. It's 500 miles and surrounded by countryside on on both sides. So there's at least a thousand miles of countryside or views. How did you decide what was going into the book or what to stop and shoot and what to bypass? It is a big area. You're right. Um, And I haven't even, I haven't touched the surface. There could be three or four volumes of this book (laughs) quite easily. Um, What I wanted to do, I wanted to shoot things in my own style initially. So it was uh, very much like a seascapes more than, than mountainscapes kind of thing. And I wanted to get a bit of mood and feeling into it. So that was part of the thought process when I was selecting areas. I, I knew large parts of the area but not all of it i've been around it on my bike but because i was cycling i never saw that much uh i didn't do it as a a trip it was a it was a charity thing so it was head down and get on with it but i did know quite a lot of the areas but i didn't want to do too many of the obvious touristy spots that somebody could just stop at the side of the road and take i wanted to get something that was maybe slightly off a beaten track so they had Mm -hmm. to stuff that your average guy wouldn't be able to stop and take on his phone with something a little bit different so with that in mind I then I just started making up lists for each each area lists of places places I knew areas I knew and then places that I wanted to investigate a little bit more and maybe go exploring and yeah I just ended up with a big list and about 50% of that I never did because I found I found places all the time as I was going that were better than what I initially <laughs> planned. It was very much like a like turn a corner and find something like where did this come from? Yeah, I can remember a trip I made through the American West uh, one year, and I would come upon a scene driving on the highway out in in the in the high desert there in the western United States, and go, my gosh, this is such a beautiful area. I've never seen anything like this. And you go around the bend in the road, it's like, no, no, wait, this is better than that. <laughs> yeah, and then you go yeah. around another bend, no, 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 this is the <laughs> exactly. And, yeah. And, it, it just, yeah, and I found in my visits to Scotland, it's very much that way as well. You think, oh my gosh this is just gorgeous and you drive another few miles around the corner of a lock or whatever and you know oh my gosh that's you know this is incredible or the next the next spot the next vista you come to and that happened um, a lot when i was out i would i would shoot something and think i had oh that's a great image and then and then i get as you say you just drive around the corner and then i'm thinking why didn't i not come here first because i've missed that good light and have to wait for the light to change yeah there was there was one day in particular i just that happened constantly i, f- I found a actually it was quite funny because i i stopped it was there was a car sitting in a in a in a, a lay-by that's what caught my eye and i looked around and i saw this waterfall and i've been on this road umpteen times i never saw this waterfall so, wow so i turned and came back and parked <laughs> As I was setting up the shot of this beautiful waterfall, a naked man appeared from <laughs> from, from behind it. I don't know who got the biggest fright, him or me. Uh, I'm guessing he but didn't make the book. He never made the book. No, he disappeared very quickly when he saw my camera. But uh, yeah, that day, it was just one of them days where it was just one location after another. And I ended up 
probably came home with about 20 pictures from that one day that I could have used, but... Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because I had a, I didn't have a naked man experience, but I had, a, in a sense, a similar experience. My first visit to Sky, I was driving back to the, the cottage where I was staying, and uh, there were a couple of people walking along the side of the road, and they had, I stopped and chatted with them. They had missed the one bus that would take them where they were going, and they were staying at a place not far from me. And I said, Well, you know, hop in the car. I'll be happy to give you a lift. As I was taking them to, to their place, I made a wrong turn, and, and they corrected me. And so I had to stop and back up, take a, a left-hand turn instead of a right. And in doing so, I, it forced me to look behind me. And there was this this amazing waterfall yeah. right there behind me that I, I would have driven. I literally had driven right by it. And mm. um, and I would never have seen it had I not taken that wrong turn and had to, you know, so yeah, life happens, circumstance, whatever. That's one of the good things when I, I do a lot of cycling and you, you see things so differently when you're, when you're on the bike than you do when you're actually driving partly because you go you're going slower but you're at a different viewpoint as well you're a different angle and you just tend to take more in you mentioned you either would miss the light or had to wait on the light and i wanted to get into that from a couple of other photographers that i've talked to you know as a tourist when i'm in scotland you know i may visit a spot and if i'm there at 10 o'clock in the morning then i have whatever light you get mm -hmm. at 10 o'clock in the morning on that particular day I assume you had the advantage in some cases of being able to go back to certain locations if you were there in the afternoon and thought, wow, this would be an amazing place to see at sunrise or vice versa at sunset or, or whatever. How much planning and work had to go into deciding not just which locations to shoot, but perhaps when to shoot, what type, what time of day in order to get the right light, what type of weather, um, how did those factors play into the decision-making? And did you go back to some locations and make multiple shots in order to get the right mood of that particular location? I don't think I went back and did anything again. I think there was a few occasions where it just didn't work and I, I maybe made a mental note to go back, but never did. I don't think I actually went back to any place there was a lot of planning involved and weather wise it was i was planning based on a, a weather forecast but if i got up in the morning and it didn't look right i just i just abandoned it and never went um if i was gonna have to drive two hours each way i needed to know it was going to be gonna be right knowing the area and using there's a few websites online that give you your sunrise and sunset times and you can you can look at it on a map and see where it's going to be setting and and it was it was fairly easy to to know which which areas would look better evening or morning depending where the sun was going to be some of it was a little bit more down to luck and and a lot of times it was just going somewhere and then got the sunset and then driving away and find something else just like we were talking about and you'd, you'd spot something else and go right i'm gonna come back here tomorrow night or whatever at the same time mm -hmm. you know um so yeah there was there was a lot of planning went into that side of it and a lot of what i did was early morning sunrise first couple hours of sun and then late afternoon into early evening when the sun was going down 
as a professional photographer then, what advice would you give to tourists who are there who want to get that once-in-a-lifetime picture of, uh, of Scotland as far as is there a specifically a best time of day to shoot or does it depend on location and weather and all of those things that sometimes would be out of control of, of the typical tourist? I think, yeah, I think morning, sunrise and sunset is always going to be the best light. Um, and I don't know whether it's just luck, but I found that sunrises almost always turned out to be better weather than sunsets. I don't know why. It was probably just coincidence, but it was really good because I'm not really, I, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm not a morning person, but I don't like getting up at 4 a.m. Because that's not that's that, I don't even class that as morning. That's nighttime. So getting up at four a.m. and and walking for driving for miles, walking for miles, I'd be pretty disappointed if I, if there was a lot of cloud and I never got it. But for some reason, every time I went out for a sunrise, I think there was one exception. Every other time, it was perfect. So it was. That's definitely the best times. First couple of hours in the morning and, and the last couple of hours of light before sunset. And then just fingers crossed and hope the weather's going to be good because you, you could have a what looks like a beautiful sunrise coming up and then all of a sudden just a low cloud. Yeah. You've, you've, you've got nothing. So there is an element of luck, but you do need to to plan it and, and have a wee bit of idea what just looking on google to be honest you can get a pretty good idea google images and if you're looking at a, a certain castle you can tell just by going through pictures whether people are shooting them morning or night you know yeah if it's a sunset or a sunrise and if everyone's shooting it as a sunset that's the time to go yeah well that's that's i never thought about that but that's obviously <laughs> a great idea yeah. Yeah. Learn something every day. I have to. I had to laugh though about your your getting up at four a.m. because my hobby um, for thirty or so years has been flying hot air balloons. And right. as you were saying, we we typically fly a couple of hours right after sunrise and a couple of hours just before sunset. And the morning flights are always better. The weather is always better mm. in the early morning. So to my audience, not that we're talking ballooning, but if you're ever going to go for a hot air balloon ride, you want to go in the morning. Trust me, it'll right. just be a better experience for you but sometimes that meant you know those 4 a.m wake up calls at the hotel and now that i've retired from flying um i'm like you i'm not a morning person i tend to work a lot late at night and so the idea of getting up early in the morning to go do something you know and then have it not turn out is pretty frustrating yeah one of the unique things that you did in your uh, through your crowdfunding i thought particularly as this was a a book about location at a certain level of contribution to your project, you allowed your backers to select a location for you. I thought that was pretty daring because I, I assume maybe you had a pretty good idea of what most of them were, but did any of the, uh, any of the suggestions or the requests that came in take you by surprise? Were any of them particularly challenging? They were very challenging to be honest, because <laughs> sometimes people see something in a different way if they've been to a certain beach they maybe love it for personal reasons but it's maybe not the most beautiful place but i like a challenge as well so that worked out quite well if i was going to do another one of these um kickstarter campaigns i think i'd focus more 
more on that type of thing because that was a that was that was good. The there was a few difficult a few difficult locations in there, but they all worked. I think partly because I, I I just liked that challenge of trying to capture something. It might not be the most beautiful location, but maybe making it look a bit mean and moody, a bit of black and white, that kind of thing. There's always an image there, but yeah, it was a challenge. <laughs> um, yeah, especially the last one I did. That that was one of the things that I probably should have done differently about the whole thing when I started. I had I had these people that had chosen a page and I thought I'll I'll get main body of work done as early as I can while the weather's good in the summer and then I'll leave them and, and fit them in at the end. That was a mistake because it, it did prove quite difficult trying to when you knew what location you had to go to and then you were arranging it with somebody else when they were free to come out and it, it was it was just quite tricky trying to schedule it in with the weather and the very last one I didn't realise quite how far it was and it ended up I think we walked twelve miles. Oh my gosh. To get I mean it was the most spectacular, beautiful beach on the west coast of Scotland, but it was lit I think it was about five miles in and then we sp- we walked for quite a distance to get right images. That was the very last page I did for the book. And that was definitely a challenge. <laughs> Because I knew the location, I was surprised when I opened the book and just kind of fanned through the pages. And one of the first ones that jumped out at me was the picture you took of the farmsteading that is going to be the Black House Mill. Yeah. I mean, let's face it. It basically is just, it's an old stone building. Now, some people say, oh, wow, you know, old stone buildings. Yes, some of them are quite picturesque, photogenic, whatever. And if Claire's listening, no offense, Claire, but the Black House (laughs) Mill building as it is, it's neat, but it isn't, you know, the most photogenic thing that I can think of. And yet you did, you used black and white, you caught it on what looked to be a fairly Greek day. Yeah. And, and it's quite a dramatic picture. It really jumps at you. So I was impressed with your work then particularly because I've been there and seen the location in, you know, in regular light and in regular light on a, on a basic day. And it just isn't a particularly imposing location. And yet you made it appear so in your work, in your photograph. Yeah, that was a uh, that was definitely one of the challenging ones. We had, we we talked about it for a wee while, and she she had a I think two or three other ideas, but they just they weren't going to work. And then we decided she decided to try to get the one of the mill. So I thought, well, let's try and make it look interesting. So it, yeah, it just involved. I think I I think I got some grass and bits and pieces in the foreground, and yeah, it yeah. turned out turned out good. Did it help in that case? Because I, I know you had been there before on the the business, the corporate shoot that you did for Claire. You'd obviously done some of that inside the building. Did that help that you had some familiarity with the location as opposed to perhaps some of the others where maybe you'd never been before? Not in the least. <laughs> because <laughs> because when I'd been there before, I'd never been looking at it in that way, thinking I'm going to, this is going to be a page in my book. Um which was, yeah, no, I, I, I had no idea what I was going to do. I just turned up and I don't think Claire was even there. It was just me wandering around up to my knees in grass looking for yeah. a, an angle that would work. And yeah, I think I only took maybe three or four shots and yeah, she was happy with that one and so was I. So it worked it all right. Wow. Is there a location that comes to mind that you went, that you had great expectations for and it just didn't work? 
I can't think of anything. There was a few close things. There was there was a few where I, I almost gave up, thinking there's nothing here, and then suddenly found something. I don't think that there was any that totally just didn't work. There was one sunrise over at uh, Rosemarkey Beach on the Black Isle, and I walked for miles, and the sun had come up, and I just couldn't find anything that worked. It was a beautiful sunrise, but... I couldn't find anything to make foreground work or anything that looked interesting. It was just a sky and a sea, and then just literally the last shot I took. I went home thinking, I've got nothing today, and then I looked at it. Oh, actually, wait a minute. And yeah, I did have one. It was the very last shot I took that day. What is it that would make a shot not work for you? The wrong light, the wrong foreground, not enough. I mean, when you, when you come down to editing the book and saying, okay, this goes in, this doesn't give us a little peek into what's your editing process in, in your brain. What makes a ph- photograph work and what doesn't. I think I just have to feel something from it. It needs to have some sort of mood or, or feeling or atmosphere to it. So the light is important, and I'd, I've shot quite a lot of the stuff I shot in the book were long exposures, so there's a bit of luck involved in that as well. So I think, yeah, it's just all about that feeling. I think that was the main thing I tried to capture throughout the whole project, was to try and have a bit of feeling so people could see sort of emotions and, and moods and skies and just a bit more... Yeah, feeling, that's the word I'm looking at. That's that's the right word, I think. Just get my images up on the screen and they would just jump out at me, one or two from each shirt that that just had that right, the right feeling. There's quite a debate going on in photography, and that's with regard to editing. I was thinking about doing a calendar one year of my photographs of Scotland, and I have a, a friend who's really, really, really talented in that regard in photo editing. And I gave him a dozen shots that I was considering for the calendar, and, and what came back when you compare, you know, his edited or as people now use the term photoshopped version of my picture to my original picture they're like night and day but there's quite a debate sometimes you see it on twitter and elsewhere and social media should you edit retouch color adjust photographs or not and i'm curious what your take is and did you do any of that in the images in your book are they actually just the scene as you saw them and captured them or is there and i'm not being i'm not criticizing i'm just asking the question is there a certain amount of enhancement or photo retouching that that went on in the process there's definitely i mean i'm not gonna lie and say that i don't do any editing but i do try and keep it as minimal as i can because I'm not a big fan of these ones that have been over-processed. Um, but shooting a raw file, when you get it back to your computer, you've got to you've got to make tweaks to it because you have to add all the contrast and the saturation and, and bits and pieces to it yourself because the camera's just not doing anything. Like if you shoot a JPEG, the camera's done all that for you, so you're coming back to your computer with the finished image, whereas... A raw file, you have to do something to it, but the difficulty was certain shots. I think it was only maybe three that actually 
did this to in the book where I've used two exposures and blended them together because the sky was so much brighter than the foreground. Even with filters, it, it just it needed... It's going back to the bracket in technique again and just using two exposures and, and dropping one one for the sky and one for the foreground. I think I did mm-hmm. two or three like that. But generally, contrast, saturation, that's about as much as I, I do. Obviously, black and white conversions to the ones that needed to be black and white. But no, I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of spending... I don't like sitting in front of my computer editing pictures. I don't mind having a, a tweak at them, but no, I'm not, I'm not one of these people that could cut a whole sky out and stick another one in or anything like yeah. that time for I'd, I'd rather be sitting doing something more interesting is there an image a specific image in the book that really stands out as one of your favorites something that really made even you as the photographer go wow i think there was a few um one in particular the ones a plodder falls they were probably yeah, they would probably be my favourites when that was near Inverness. Uh, when I got them back, and it took a, it was a real struggle to get them because I had to. If you go to Plodder Falls, there's there's a viewing platform, but everything's on the same side as the waterfall, on the same side of the water. So you you're looking at it from above, looking down, and you can walk down. There's a there's a walk so far down, and you come to another viewing area, but you're looking almost sideways at it. And I thought. I really need to be on the other side of that water shooting back, which was a real struggle because the water was high and I had to make my way across some rocks. I had to pack everything up into my my rucksack and try and cross these greasy, slippery rocks using my tripod as a walking pole. And it took me ages to go across because I thought, if I fall now, this is going to be... <laughs> I was going to say, that could be a good. costly, costly yeah, shoot. <laughs> it was not going to be good. And I got over there and it was it was cracking. It worked really well, but I didn't really look too much at what I had until I got home. And then, it, wow, I really liked them. They were, they were probably, yeah, that was the ones I was most impressed afterwards with. And especially after all the effort I'd gone to, to, to get there. Have you received feedback from uh, your readers at, at any point that surprised you, either as an image that they found that they found particularly exciting, or on the other side of the coin, any that they went, "What you shot that? Oh my gosh, why?" <laughs> no, I don't think I've had anything uh, anything <laughs> like that. Oh well, uh, I want to talk to you afterwards then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, a lot of good feedback from like local people that. Had, like me lived here all their life and maybe either hadn't seen a place or it looked completely different to how they'd imagined it and yeah that was good one thing that is changing i think photography in a very dramatic way not all of it good is the use of drones because drones can give you a view of uh, of an area particularly if we're talking landscape photography a view of a waterfall for example that you simply can't get if you're landlocked with a tripod because the the drone can get up you know directly in front of it floating in air it can get above it can get below etc that a lot of times you just physically don't have an area you wouldn't or a view an angle you wouldn't have access to 
Um, did you, two questions, did you use a drone at all in, in your, in your work in this book? Do you use a drone and what are your thoughts about drone photography and, and how, and if it is changing photography on, on the whole? I haven't used a drone for any of, any of this. I bought a drone way back when they first came out, 2012 or 13. It was the original DJI Phantom and it was terrible. You had to, you had to fit a GoPro in it and it, you had to buy, a, to buy a, a gimbal from Hong Kong off eBay that, that worked some days and never worked other days. Um, I got some nice still images from it, but the video footage was dreadful. Now they're brilliant. Um, so I haven't used one since then. Well, I used it a few times. I used it for maybe about a year, and it's now lying in a box worth nothing. It's not even worth trying to sell. Um, I do like... I love seeing the images from the sky because it's just... It's something you never normally would see. The only downside to it is there's so many people flying them now. I think it's going to end up... They're going to be banned and people are going to have to have licenses and insurance and whatever else because everywhere you go, you can hear them buzzing around. I've, I've had a few experiences with them at weddings and um, yeah, it's not good. I want to go back to the uh, the question of crowdfunding for a moment because yours was the uh, the second, in particular, landscape photography book that that I'd come across via crowdfunding. And I'm just curious of your opinion from a photographer standpoint: is crowdfunding changing the ability to bring a product like your book to the public? Is this something that maybe maybe we wouldn't be seeing this book if crowdfunding were not available? Yeah, definitely. I think it's it's a game changer for people like me. Yeah, I know a few photographers that have published books in the past by crowdfunding, but I've spoken to a lot of people since I've done this project that are talking about doing it now. It seems to have sowed that seed in, in a few people's heads. Uh, I've done talks on this book and there's been a lot of interest in this side of it about the funding thing, because I think a lot of people looking at, oh, how do I get a publishing deal, or how can I publish a book? It's impossible. But this has just opened up. You can make it as big or as small as you want. You mm-hmm. know, you could you could, you could, could publish 100 books or 10,000 books. It just depends how, how you want to do it. So I, I think it's just so much more flexible for your sort of one solo photographer, He's maybe not got funds to to do it himself. So well, a lot of opportunities. Yeah, and and as you say, of course, as you felt a little bit when you when you put the idea out there, you get you almost get some immediate feedback. Either people buy yeah. into it and they back your project, or they don't, <laughs> and you go, oh, maybe I should have a rethink. Exactly, it's a much safer way of doing it than than just funding it yourself and hoping that you're gonna you're gonna sell it. Yeah, get your money back. Yeah. What is it, in your opinion, that makes Scotland such a popular destination for photographers? I think it's it's got a magical quality. I'm very biased anyway, being from here, but there's something magical about it. You, especially the West Coast, there's just something spectacular about it. You know, the the, the scenery, the the changing skies, the weather. I mean, good or bad weather, you can always 
you always have a dramatic scene in front of you, unless you can't see anything. <laughs> done that. It does tend to happen uh, from time to time, but you know, you can get a, a stormy day and it's it looks completely different than it did yesterday when it was sunny and so dramatic looking. Another big thing about Scotland is the history and the castles and all these ruins. You could be wandering around ruins from, I don't know, 13th, 14th centuries and it's, I think that's a big draw for people as well. My thanks, as always, to my guest, photographer, writer, and speaker, John Bakey. While it's true he funded publication of his book, The Magic of the North Coast 500, with a campaign on Kickstarter, where backers received a signed and numbered limited edition, you haven't missed out. The book is now available to the public on his website. You'll find the link for ordering and a handful of examples of his stunning photography in our show notes at www.underthetartansky.scot. Next time, we don't travel very far as we'll preview the upcoming first ever Highland Whiskey Festival, featuring eight individual distilleries from the Northern Scottish Highlands, all located on or near the North Coast 500. So join us for a wee dram, won't you? Until then, I'm Glenn Moyer. Tapalave, I guess Alpha Cabra. Under the Tartan Sky is a production of Glenn L. Moyer Creative Communications. For show notes and more information on this and all Under the Tartan Sky episodes, please visit our website at www.underthetartansky.scot. Have an idea for a future episode? Well, get in touch via email at info at underthetartansky.scot. Visit and like our page on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our username is at underscore tartan sky. That's the underscore symbol tartan sky. And thank you for listening. <laughs>